Welcome to episode 232 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's program, we have author, professor, David Hicks on the program. We talk with David about his debut novel titled White Plains and how he came about writing it. We talk about the fact that two of his children wrote two of the chapters. We also talk about fatherhood, when he realized he was a writer, why it took him so long to write his first novel, his influences, the importance of reading and writing in society, storytelling, as well as a few other interesting areas of discourse. David Hicks on the program today. We also have an essay by our associate producer and resident essayist, the extraordinary, incomparable Dr. Michael Pavis, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare. His essay is titled, Tilly. We also have an essay by yours truly, titled, To Say, and a poem titled, Living. All of this is intermingled, interspersed, ensconced within several great tunes. Let's get to it. Episode 232 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Folded in your fleshy purse, I am floating once again, while the muted sounds are Oh, 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 
place to live Growing up, growing up Looking for a place to live Growing up, growing up Looking for a place to live Growing up, growing up Looking for a place to live My goals like to travel To say, I don't know what to say. Are you listening in Kenya? Are you listening in Bombay? Are you tuned in to, as part of the fringe fray, up the main line toward the Carbondale Way? We have a fat-ass, pea-brained president and cynical adolescent majority rule in both houses of Congress. A glacial ice plate the size of three or four Londons is about to break off and float toward the civilization that has set it free. Though I know it isn't on you, no, no, it isn't on me. As long as you have your pocket computer connected to the land of the brave, home of all you can be. No worries. It's all good, brother, sister, megalomaniacal mister. It is what it is. And anyway, is you is or is you ain't my baby? Or baby, baby, should I find somebody new? It's that easy, I presume. You don't need to be uncomfortable or committed in any long-term way. You can simply disengage and pursue your impulsive dreams as if it, we are all made of clay. I don't know what to say. By a suicide vest Leave a dirty bomb At a Wall Street address Gate crash a Rothschild party And leave it in a mess In a mess Dirty mess It started out a beacon of hope But the dream of liberty Quickly turned into a joke The Indians and Mexicans Were the first to feel the rope The blade, the gallon Wagon trace came rattling Murdered buffalo, block cattle in Storm clouds were gathering It's how the West was won It's how the West was won At the point of a gun like they've always done Just like everybody else I'm in love with Kim Kardashian Taken over from J-Lo As my number one 
just a bum In another timeline I would have stared at her all day long Without ever wanting to see her from the front God knows I love America To propagate in every sense, you were profligate. Even your parents ran away from home to escape you. Your best friends all hate you. I don't mean to devastate you. It's how the West was won. It's how the West was won. Head on the spike of a gun. Just like you've always done It's not mystery It's your history It's what you've always done David Hicks. Lawrence. Yes. Thank you for being on oh, Troubadours and Rock. Yeah, finally. <laughs> Thanks for being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Appreciate it. It's nice to hear your voice. Same here. Same here. Uh, before we get started, let me share a little background with uh, the listeners, and then uh, we'll talk about your novel and a few other things, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah, thanks. David Hicks. David is the author of the debut novel, White Plains which is published by Conundrum Press. It was published this year. Excerpts from the novel have been published as short stories in Glimmer Train, the Colorado Review, Specs, Saranac Review, and South Dakota Review, along with other stellar journals. David lives in Colorado with his wife, the poet Cynthia Kalinowski, and with uh, his children, Stephen and Caitlin, nearby, and is a professor of at Regis University, where he is also the co-director of the Mile High MFA program. David, it's nice to have you on the show, and uh, let's get right into a little bit about your book. It's getting a lot of traction. It's titled White Plains, and uh, I read some reviews. I read some excerpts. I haven't read the book yet, though it's on my short list. I can't wait to get into it this summer. Tell us a bit about the story, if you wouldn't mind. Sure, thanks, and thanks for having me on. Um, it's uh, a man named Flynn Hawkins, uh, after his divorce, loses his children, and um, on the heels of 9-11, where, uh, he gets a divorce, he loses his kids, and he quits his job, and kind of loses his identity, because he identifies primarily as a father, and then he makes a series of bad decisions uh, following that, primarily to move to the mountains of Colorado, um, ostensibly to pursue another relationship because a woman he's, he was dating after he left his marriage, a woman who lives in Colorado, tells him she's pregnant, so he moves out there to do the right thing. But what ends up happening is that the landscape of Colorado kind of helps him to bottom out, if you know what I mean, to mm-hmm. to face his fears, to try to make up for his mistakes. And 
um, be the kind of man his children need him to be. You know that phrase, like, I want to be the kind of person my dog wants me to be or thinks I am? He (laughs) kind of becomes the kind of man his kids need him to be. So ultimately it's redemptive since he reunites with his children and begins a very different kind of life with them and and finds a different way to make a living, too, that more closely matches who he is. But until that point, it's it's pretty painful, although there are some self-deprecating moments, uh, light moments of love and humor that, may help it to make it a good read. And what what spurred you to, what, where did this come from, this story? Yeah, this came from, uh, this was a series of uh, short stories that I published and, and, and um, among other magazines, the one you named, uh, different uh, short stories uh, among the many I published. And, and when, I, when I went to collect the, the stories uh, in a story collection, I found that if I, took out the stories that weren't about this kind of guy who's kind of like me. And if I, if I took out those stories and ordered these stories about this guy who, who's ultimately called Flynn in the book and put them in chronological order, then it made for a novel arc and, uh, you know, guy screws up his life and kind of gets it back together at the end. And with like a, a, a series of, conflicts and climaxes, you know, uh, and, and sources of tension. And then I just needed to, in order to, for it to actually be a novel, I needed to fill in some gaps in the, in that story because I hadn't written it, you know, originally as a, as a novel. So I, I added some stories from different characters' points of view because I'd read a, I'd read a book called The Last to Go by Rand Richards Cooper in which he just in which he depicts a, a a family that's ripped apart from divorce or by divorce and he writes it from different family members points of view the son has a point of view that the father has a chapter the mother has a chapter etc and so i tried that with with this book with what planes and i added a chapter from the ex-wife's point of view from the sister's point of view the, the kid's point of view and baseball coach and it kind of filled out the gaps in the arc of the novel. Uh, and then when I was finished with that, then it felt it felt more like a novel, you know what I mean, instead of a sto- story collection, even though the novel is a novel in stories and that every chapter is its own short story. And and thank you for explaining that. And your your children helped you. They wrote some... Yeah. Were they writing uh, parts that filled in some of the gaps, as you put it? Yeah, so that, that's my thank you for asking about that because my favorite uh, chapters in the book, even though they're not probably they're very short and they're probably not the most dynamic chapters to the to the reader. But for me, I I love those chapters because um, I so I myself uh, I'm basing much of the story on my own life, and there was a year or so, a year or more, when I couldn't see my kids very often. And during that year, uh, a lot happened that they couldn't or they didn't tell me about uh, either by phone or when I visited. So uh, when I wrote this book and the character, the kids um, in the in the novel became a, a really strong presence, even if, even in their absence. Like there's a whole section of the book where they're not involved, but they are weighing on Flynn's mind. So I asked my kids if they would write um, just their own, just something that happened while we didn't see each other that I didn't know about. So I get their, so I would get their point of view not as a someone sympathetic to me or to Flynn, but as um, maybe not so sympathetic, but maybe maybe like you know what happens when you miss your dad, like what what's your life like, and if they could describe just like one day or one incident. And they did. My daughter, typically for her, wrote a very um, pathetic, in the old sense of the word, bullet pathos uh, story about um, a day when she was, or a time in her life where her mother moved them to a different, uh, uh, to upstate New York. And um, my daughter would eat lunch in the cafeteria by herself. And in fact, even ate lunch a couple times in the bathroom. Like she just, couldn't stand to say hi to anybody she was just really sad and and my son also typically wrote a kind of adventure story about uh, a, a nerf gun fight he had with his um 
potential stepdad, but the man who was living with them, uh, with my ex-wife, with their mom. And so I got from them stories of, uh, of times that, you know, episodes in their life that were meaningful to them, but also fed the story of that I was writing, which is, you know, here's what happens to the kids. Like here, here's their point of view. Uh, when a, when a man leaves them and when a father leaves them and, uh, it's typical day-to-day stuff, but it's also, uh, resonates because it's not something I or the character Flynn would ever have known. So it provides a nice perspective on the, on the larger story. I love it. And, you know, you're yeah. talking to a, a single father who's gone through some things that you've mentioned mm-hmm. too, so I could commiserate, uh, and I'm sure a lot of men, uh, could commiserate, and uh, I'm sure it's nice to it's nice to be able to share that for yourself too. Maybe cathartic in a way. I don't know. Oh yeah, because uh, there, there's it's not the typical thing. I mean, it's it's sort of typical in a divorce where the dad doesn't get to see the kids very much. But and before that, I uh, I really you know I took care of them all the time. Like I was I was uh, often mom and dad to them, and had a very big involvement in their upbringing and then suddenly there was nothing so there's not a lot of um sympathy i guess for fathers from that point of view uh generally speaking Mm, but um there's a story to tell and it's you know fatherhood is a is a tough and distinct thing and you know all all praise to and compliments to single moms and women who whose husbands leave or they leave their husbands and have to raise the children on their own. But there's not a lot about fathers who, what it feels like to be, be a very loving parent to your children and then, and then all of a sudden not seeing them very much. Well put, sir. And uh, this is your first novel, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, I was, uh, yeah, go ahead, please. I would say you're, you're uh, an educator, you're a professor, um, and I guess that's, uh, you've been writing short stories and essays and teaching, and then your novel came out. Uh, I I'm, I'm presume you're at least in your 40s? Oh, yeah, I'm in my 50s, yeah. In your 50s? This, this is late in life, yeah. Yeah. So uh, what took you so long? <laughs> that's, I, I feel like that's the most compelling question, I'm glad, but no one's asked me that, so thank you. You're welcome. Uh, I, I think, like many people, perhaps, I... And I certainly meet people like this in my MFA program. People, uh, the average age of my MFA students is uh, about 40, 41, something like that. I think I didn't, uh, I mean, I love books. When I, I read so much when I was young. And I think I would have wanted to be a writer if anyone in my family could ever say such a thing or, you know, dare to say I want to be an artist of any kind. So, But my, I didn't even consider it because I knew that my job was to work and make money and you know, do something practical. And I, I went to grad school as a, I went to college as a writing major and then, but it was more rhetoric, more um, practical writing. And then uh, went to grad school and became a professor very young. I was teaching when I was 22. So I, I, I just did that, you know, I, and when you're an academic, you write academic uh, articles and you give papers and it's really more analytical writing than creative writing. And then I got, all along, I was getting kind of tired of being someone who wrote about writers instead of the writer himself. Mm-hmm. So in my early 40s, I started writing short stories. I mean, I, I gave it a shot in my 20s, but it was just awful. And I didn't, I didn't do the work. Like, I didn't go to workshops or, or and I didn't learn the craft of writing. And then in my, I'd say in my late 30s, I started going to workshops and learning and then gave it a shot in my early 40s and started publishing short stories. And then, um, and that's when I got a job, that's when I got this job at Regis in Denver. And when I got this job, I asked if I, if they would value creative work as much as uh, analytical work in terms of tenure and things like that, promotion. And they said yes. And that's, that's been a great gift because since then, all I've done is work on my fiction. And uh, so these stories were published in my 40s, and then what I told you about earlier about collecting them or making them into a novel, that happened in my uh, just about when I turned 50. So 
it's that's what took me so long. I, I didn't believe that I could be a writer, and then the career I'm in kind of doesn't really prevent it, but it it did for all practical purposes. You know, I I got tenure. Um, I've I've, I've received earned tenure twice, and the first time was mostly on academic stuff, and the second time it was me being more of a creative writer, and that's really what I've always wanted to do, but I I never really had the courage or the self-esteem to pursue it, and then I did. Mm, Excellent. Glad you did. And um, your influences, and and I guess maybe two parts here, maybe you can meld these together. Uh, When did you come to realize that that's what you wanted to do, that you wanted to be involved with the written word that you wanted to be a writer or, and also you know then your influences well who are they yeah they're both uh good and difficult questions because but uh, i i can't pinpoint a time i I'm, except the one i told you about where i i got this new job and uh this is 17 years ago and thought okay now's the time i want to be a writer but i don't know there wasn't any particular thing um uh, that inspired that just i've always wanted to be a writer but i I never really wanted to admit it. And I think sometimes when your life falls apart the way mine did uh, many years ago, it it triggers a reevaluation of who you are and what you want to do. And mm-hmm. I think that's what happened, but I still needed to put the work in to, to learn how to write. And so, um, but when I, when I got that first story published, that's, I thought, okay, I can do this. Um, I'm, I'm capable of, of publishing a short story. I'm, I'm capable of, of writing stories that could work, that could resonate. And um, and that that just, from then on, it became a, a slow but steady progress from a being a professor who wrote once in a while to being a writer who professes once in a while. You know, like, <laughs> I do it for a living. I'm a good teacher, but it's mainly writing. And... And the influences along the way are probably very many um, but because I'm a professor of early American literature, so I love the old the 19th century symbolists. Like, I love Melville and Hawthorne and Emily Dickinson and uh, Whitman. And so, you know, there's a little Hawthorne in me. There's a little Melvillian stuff in me. Um, and, and I read my contemporaries all the time now. Um, Ron Carlson is one of my heroes. He's a he's a wonderful storyteller, and uh, I'm about to read in Portland on Thursday with one of my one of my heroes, Lainey Zumas is her name, and she writes very differently than I do. She's she writes uh, there's really a big imaginative quality to her writing, whereas mine tends to be more non-metaphorical and close to the earth, but. She's another influence, and I, I mean, I read so many contemporary writers now, and they—I feel like unconsciously they all contribute to what I do. There's some, there's sometimes where I'm consciously writing some kind of homage to somebody, like White Plains. Feels a little bit like the title of Richard Ford's uh, important short story collection, Rock Springs, mm-hmm. and and that was an early influence for sure. His kind of writing, but. Uh, and I, I don't consciously write like anyone, but I know I'm embodying when I write so many people that I've read because I, I read so many books. Right. How could you not be influenced by that, right? Yeah. It, yeah, of course. I mean, there's some points like when I, I was teaching Moby Dick a couple of years ago and Melville's, you could tell when Melville's reading Shakespeare because all of a sudden his prose turns Shakespearean. He writes in blank verse in the middle of this big novel. Mm-hmm. So sometimes like, it's really obvious who, and someone else might tell me that I'm clearly influenced by X, but I just feel like let it be, you know, let that be, right? Whatever it is, I'm I'm influenced by many, and it's going to come out in my writing. Um, but it's not so much conscious as unconscious. And it, mainly, it's it's American writers, um, writers from the United States. Yeah, I'm really I'm. I'm big into Dostoevsky and uh, other writers, non-American, but it's mostly American. Yeah, I'm I'm reading these days. I'm reading almost exclusively uh, my American contemporaries. And you know, when when we talk about writing and we talk about reading, I know I 
I, I sent you uh, an email listing some of the areas we would go. And after I wrote this sentence, I thought it sounded so simple, maybe too simple, you know. But then I reflected on it, and I, I figured you'll get it. And and uh, it's the importance of writing and reading to society. Yeah, yeah. That uh, you wrote that, and I thought that's the biggest question I've been thinking about lately because I I, I was on this in, like insane thirty three cities in thirty four days kind of book tour, and I was thinking about that all the time. What what compels us? Like, look, I'm, why why am I enjoying this so much? And it was something about reading to someone else, like reading to people in the audience and that experience that I love. I love, it's like, you know, when you're kids, you sit on the floor and someone reads to you or, or you're in bed and your father and mother reads to you. It's this, it's this great feeling. Um, it's really important. It's especially important now, it seems, just, you know, scientifically because cognitive scientists have found that what what people long ago, uh, including the Greeks, but including like Northrop Fry and people like that, have long suspected or known that reading fiction makes us better people. <laughs> <laughs> reading reading stories, and and it's interesting that it's fiction, right? It's not nonfiction. Reading fiction makes us more empathetic, makes us more tolerant, makes us more likely to live together in harmony or understand one another. And we're used to depicting those people, those readers, as, you know, nerds who are home alone and don't know how to be social. But actually reading fiction makes us more pro-social, like more sociable and, and interesting and intelligent and kind. So the the act of reading and writing, which, you know, goes way back, right? With The Greeks used to just tell each other stories, tell each other the same stories, the myth, the stories of mythological figures as entertainment like they would stand in the little amphitheater and and tell the stories that everyone knew and everyone was delighted to hear again so this form of communication and this way of being human with each other goes way back but now when it's seen increasingly as something impractical and useless it's actually very very important to read and write to tell stories and to to quietly internally absorb stories of other people who are not necessarily like you or, or like you, but not really like you. Right. Right. But that makes us uh, more tolerant uh, in general, which I mean, I don't have to tell you or your listeners. That's just more important than ever right now. Oh, definitely. Uh, and you know, I, I'm wondering if you are concerned given what I see, maybe you don't see the same thing with regard to how much we read and write uh, we, most people, maybe not my generation, or I'm pretty much the same generation as you. I'm 50. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a, I'm a, an early generation X, I believe, like very mm -hmm. early. Mm -hmm. um, we, we don't, tw we don't go on. Maybe I, I don't at least Twitter that much or or text as much as people who are the millennials, and that. I fear might uh, thwart their development in terms of how to to better communicate in the written form, or even standing face to face with another person. And I might be projecting; right. I might be oversimplifying. I don't mean to insult, but that is, whether it be right or wrong, a concern of mine for the future in terms of how we function, how we communicate, how we reflect, how we empathize as a society. Yeah, it's, I share your concern, and I I also um, have met and. Uh, really enjoyed the writing of many young writers in their twenties who are who are writing differently than I do, but uh, really compelling stuff. I mean, it might be. I mean, my daughter read. I can't remember her name. I'm sorry, I can't remember this. But she she's written a bunch of novels that are texts. You know, some most of them through text uh, text messages, like a series of texts. Mm -hmm. And there are writers who are writing uh, novels through tweets, and they're there's still dialogue, it's still conflict, it's still, you know, the same stuff, but it's very, very different. Um, and I'm also buoyed by my students. I mean, I'm a college professor, I, I teach 18 to 22-year-olds, this is the generation you're talking about, and yeah, they don't read that much, they haven't read that much. Um, but they still find stories compelling, and they still, I mean, the, the, the slackers are still the slackers, and the same as my generation, like, you right. know, 
the students who don't want to read or don't care, don't want to read and don't care. But they're still like, you know, God bless the English majors. They, they still find <laughs> stories really compelling. They still are, they are kind of avoiding uh, e-readers and going at, at roughly the same, even a higher percentage rate than we are going back to the book, the written, the page. And they're still writing poetry. They still get a lot out of writing their own stories. And as opposed to le- learning about other people's stories, they still get a lot of self-worth and uh, are beautiful in terms of their expression when they are uh, asked to write their, and read other people's stories. So there is hope, but you're right. Uh, if you don't read a lot when you're a kid and you're, you're watching videos or you, or you get your iPad when you're seven, then you're not gonna you're not gonna absorb the same kind of syntax and narrative structures that people have for many centuries, and that will uh, push people, uh, young people, away from novels and and stories and poetry. Um, but it, it hasn't gone the way it's it was supposed to have gone. You know what I mean? It's not. We're not all digital now. Print was supposed to be dead a long time ago. Right. And young people young people are reading, they are they are writing, so uh, you know, roughly the same percentage as most other Americans. So I think I think we'll be okay. But I think storytelling is just taking new forms. Uh you know, uh social media stuff, uh a lot of a lot of video, a lot of um a lot of digital storytelling, which is fascinating, a lot of digital poetry which which is you know combining images with poetic poetics so it's it's taking a new form but it's still pretty cool thanks for the analysis professor um (laughs) okay i know very good and uh how about uh before we you know we have a couple of minutes left i want to give you the opportunity to let people know where they could find some of your work and such and connect with you Oh, thanks. Um, everything's at my website, davidhicks.com, and, and the, there's a hyphen between David and Hicks, or else you get a very famous bathroom designer. Um, <laughs> so there's that. And uh, and I'm uh, also on that site is uh, a list of my appearances uh, and, and, and my newsletter. So that's a good way to, that site is a good way to get a hold of me or to follow me. Okay, great. And, and you're, you're still, I guess, uh, focused on getting white plans out to a lot of folks are are you also working on anything new i am i'm finishing up a a a very big new novel uh that's i mean white plains is kind of a small the focus is very small and it's a very quiet book this feels much bigger and i don't know more messy (laughs) um about a about a kind of the demise of america is told through a waiter's so uh he's just a a very optimistic, charming guy, but the world is kind of crumbling around him, and he's trying to—he's trying his best to tell his story. So I'm working on that. His world is crumbling around, or the larger his world and 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 America too. It starts with the nine eleven. It starts with the Columbine shootings and the Bush election and nine eleven, and then it kind of his life and and the country around him kind of goes down uh, for the next fifteen years after that, and it sort of traces his. He's very optimistic. He always thinks it's going to be okay, but uh, it's, I just wrote the ending, and it's it's not pretty. <laughs> I'm a little embarrassed about it. But it is what it is. So you're you're finished? You think? I'm I'm finished. I definitely finished the draft. I, I'm now with a couple of my friends who I trust, and then I'm going to try to revise it. I, I I revise things a lot. It takes a long time. I, most of the things I've published I've revised about fifty times. So. I've revised it a few times already, and it's going to take a bunch more before it's ready. But I, I think in the fall it might be ready. And and the title you're going to keep under wraps? Uh, no, the ti- his name is Danny, Daniel Gospel, G-O-U-S-E-P-A-O-H-L. It's a German name, mm-hmm. but it's called The Gospel According to Danny. Nice. So it's, nice. His, it's his writings, it's his journals, it's his Facebook posts, it's his uh, musings. Uh, and he's he's died he has died so we, we find his papers and we piece together his narrative from that so it's called the gospel according to Danny unless that's my agent changes it <laughs> it sounds excellent it sounds excellent Thanks. thank you ladies and gentlemen author professor David Hicks on Troubadours and Rock on Tours 
A pleasure talking with you, sir. And uh, you know, we're we're talking on the day before Independence Day in the United Mm -hmm. States of America. I wish you a happy Independence Day and uh, have a good summer as well. We'll talk to you again in the future once that uh, new novel is ready to go, if you like. Thank you so much, Lawrence. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Take care. You too. reputation of the zoo in our town reached its nadir long after it closed and turned into a ghost zoo. A popular TV sitcom used the zoo as a punchline. The town itself had served as a punchline for generations. One of the characters acquires a monkey, as characters do in sitcoms, 
and the monkey's dire fate is to be sent to our town zoo. At the mention of our town, the studio audience laughed. The nation laughed. Our town laughed. In real life, however, the joke wouldn't have been as funny, and the monkey would have been doomed like his fellow simians and all the other animals who serve their time behind bars in their cramped concrete cells. When it was built in less enlightened times, 1920, the zoo, with its rows of tiny cages and its foul-smelling indoor displays, was an attraction in a city park with a pool, picnic tables, rides, a penny arcade, a museum, and a gorge on a river from which young people jumped, occasionally, to their deaths, and a bear pit, and, for a while, a petting zoo, where, depending on yours and the animals' perspectives, luckier livestock had more room to roam, but had to deal more directly with all manner of curious and sadistic children. One of the stars of the zoo, and a minor figure in our town's history, was Tilly, the dancing elephant. Tilly had succeeded Queenie, who had been purchased partly by change collected by the children of the town, in much the same way that Catholic schoolchildren spared their pennies to convert pagan babies in darkest Africa. Tilly arrived from New Hampshire with her donkey friend, Joshua. Tilly was one of the saddest cases in a series of sad cases, from the lions to the baboon to the elk to the chimps. For years and years, Tilly trotted between the indoor and outdoor areas of her cage, about the size of a small two-bedroom apartment, and thrilled and amused town folk, young and old, damp from the pool, burnt by the sun, or nauseous from the rides and hot dogs and cotton candy. Tilly stared at us, and we stared at Tilly, and then we went home, and Tilly stayed at the zoo with her fellow inmates, anxiously awaiting, or perhaps dreading, our return visit. Tilly became a character in the movie version of that championship season, the Pulitzer Prize-winning play by one of our town's most famous native sons, Jason Miller. In the first scene in the movie, filmed in our town, in the actual park, the dim-witted and hard-luck Mayor Sikowski, a Polish joke played by Bruce Dern, unveils the zoo's new elephant, Tilly. Much hoopla ensues. A few days later, Tilly dies. The mayor is in a quandary. What to do with the massive carcass? While he dithers, Tilly begins to rot and reek. He ends up burying her in an abandoned mine shaft. It's a public relations disaster for the mayor, who is seeking re-election. The Tilly subplot is merely prologue to the rest of the story, a reunion of a high school basketball team, and the festering wounds, resentments, delusions, and disappointments that detonate when the old gang gets together to reminisce, recriminate, bitch, and booze. By inserting Tilly into his tale, Miller neatly dovetailed our beloved elephant with our mining history and our communal neuroses. In the movie, the part of Tilly was, of course, played by a trained animal, an acting elephant. Show business wasn't to be the fate of our Tilly, despite her dancing moniker. She wasn't destined to shine under the big top. She didn't spend most of her life in a train car, rolling from town to town and venue to venue like a pachyderm vaudevillian. She didn't have to do tricks at the command of her master or for the amusement of the yokels eating their popcorn. She didn't prance under the lights, don a fancy headdress, or spy through the flap of her tent, the awkward tryst of a lonely trapeze artist and a randy clown. No glitz, no glamour for our elephant. No traveling, not much movement. Tilly Miller shuffled from indoor to outdoor, day after day after day. 
What did Tilly see when she gazed through the bars of her cage and at the foliage and hills surrounding the zoo? What did her famous elephant's memory contain? She never knew romps through the forest or mud baths or charges with her fellow elephants. She couldn't remember the burial grounds where she belonged when her long lifespan ended. Maybe she had dim memories of her mother in Asia where she was born or her time in New Hampshire. She mainly knew her postage size, postage stamp size spot in a scandal-plagued zoo in our depressed former coal town. When Tilly died, we had Princess Penny. And when Princess Penny died, we had Tony. And the treatment of Tony caused one of the last scandals. Ailing and arthritic, Tony was rescued and sent to the National Zoo in Washington, D.C., where she had to be euthanized. The zoo is empty now. It's been handed over to a nonprofit whose mission is to spay feral cats. All the animals are long gone. The ghosts of the bears and the lions and the monkeys and Tilly pace the empty cages. The shape you're in Finger on your eyebrow And left hand on your hip Thinking that you're such a lady killer Think you're so slick Well, all right Que te quiero, pero usted me quita todo. Ya me robaste mi televisión, mi radio. Ahora quiero llevar mi carro. No me haga así, Rosita. Ven aquí, hey, usted que es al lado, Rosita. Oh. Living. 
through the Poconos toward Secaucus, or maybe instead the Lincoln Tunnel, and then West 44th Street, park and walk to the Manhattan Theater Club for an evening immersed in the cost of living. Martina is at the O'Neill for some summer acting, and we are so excited to go. And there you have it, episode 232 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks that made this episode possible. First and foremost, the great professor and great writer of novel, hopefully novels, coming soon to a bookstore near you, David Hicks. Thank you so much for being on the program. It was really a pleasure talking with you. I'd also like to thank our associate producer and resident essayist extraordinaire, Dr. Michael Pavise, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare. I'd like to thank these musical artists as well. Peter Gabriel, Peter Perret, Washed Out Mink DeVille, Hugh Masekela, Django Reinhardt and Stefan Grappelli, Terence Blanchard, and Brentford Marsalis, too. We'll be back next week with another fine installment of Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Until then, enjoy this week. Thanks so much for listening.